I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Welcome to this week's episode. Before we get started, remember that we have the Jefferson County Bigfoot and Paranormal Expo coming up the 26th in Reynoldsville, Pennsylvania. That would be tomorrow if you're listening on Friday. This event is 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. in Renlo Park. There are lots of vendors and speakers, so come out and enjoy the expo if you are in the area. I have turned it into a paranormal family vacation. I mean, pretty much I turn everything into a paranormal vacation. Anyway, I'm hoping to have some new investigation info and some topics for the podcast after this trip. And hopefully I'll manage to record something on site. We'll see. We also have the Whitehall Sasquatch Festival on September 30th in Whitehall, New York, so make sure you have that on your calendar as well. So let's get to the episode. We have two different strange and mysterious disappearances to look at. First, we're going to look at the strange, mysterious disappearance case of Constantino Philippidis. Constantino goes by the name Danny, so that will be how I refer to him from here on out. Danny Philippidis is a captain in the Toronto Fire Department and was 49 years old at the time his disappearance took place. Danny and colleagues from work were on an annual skiing trip to Whiteface Mountain in Lake Placid, New York on February 2nd, 2018. It kind of reminds me of my childhood. The fire department is definitely a brotherhood and basically a large family. I went on many annual trips with the families from my dad's fire department shift. None of us disappeared. So Danny Philippidis is skiing with his buddies from the fire department when he decides he needs to get his phone in order to take some photos of their adventure. He tells his group he's heading to his car to grab his phone and takes off. At 4 p.m. February 2nd, Danny Philippidis doesn't show up to the ski lodge and his friends begin looking for him. The authorities are notified and in total there are eight government agencies, including law enforcement, border officers, and homeland security agents, plus two ski patrols involved in the search. Helicopters and search dog teams were also involved. In total, there were about 140 people who searched a total of 7,000 hours, but they didn't find Danny or any sign of him. Then six days after the search started, Danny Philippidis' wife gets a phone call from Danny. He used a nickname for her that only he knew, and that plus the sound of the man's voice made her believe that it was, in fact, her husband. The call is lost, but then he calls back and she convinces him to call 911. Police arrive to find a man at the airport wearing ski clothes and even included his ski helmet and goggles. 
though I'm not certain he was actually wearing the goggles and ski helmet. He may have just had them with him. Danny also had $1,000 in cash and had somehow purchased a new iPhone and gotten a haircut. Police were certain he was not under the influence of alcohol or drugs. His memories of his ordeal were basically gone, but he remembered getting sick by the side of the road. He also must have hailed a ride because he was riding with a truck driver and he remembered learning that they were driving through Utah. He was eventually dropped off in Sacramento, California. The police were never able to find the truck driver, which personally I find odd. In Sacramento, Danny Philippidis said he wandered around wanting to contact his wife, but he didn't know how. It's believed that on his way to his vehicle back in New York, he somehow took a wrong turn, fell, and suffered a head injury near a children's programming area that was closed at the time. Three sets of tests and multiple visits to neurologists and neuropsychologists showed some sort of possible head injury. Today, Danny Philippidis is healthy and back on the job as captain in the Toronto Fire Department. He still has little to no memory of what happened to him. I do want to point out one interesting thing that I want you to think about. Maybe he did fall and receive a nasty head trauma. I know firsthand that head injury can cause all kinds of issues. But not only was he wearing a helmet while he was skiing, and when he went to get his phone, and he still had his helmet when he was found in California six days later. Exactly what kind of force would be needed to cause a head injury that would give him amnesia when he was wearing a helmet? I'm not suggesting that helmets are 100% effective, because they're not 100%, but they are protective and they do lessen damage. And there was no 100% definitive proof that he had actually fallen. It was just the best educated guess to what happened. There is a common theory that he was abducted by aliens. And I'm not saying whether or not I believe that, but I don't know that it's outside the realm of possibility. I imagine we'll never really know what happened unless Danny Philippidis remembers what happened to him and decides to share. I know that's a short story, but it really leaves a lot to the imagination. They think the best option is that he took a fall on his way to get his phone. The helmet did not protect him. He got a nasty head trauma and hailed a truck driver who drove him all the way to Sacramento, California from New York, so completely across the country. And no one can, the police can, I don't want to say no one, the police who have the ability to find people could not locate any truck driver who would say, yes, I drove him there. It just seems a little odd. Whether you want to believe that it was aliens and he made up the truck driver, or that there was a truck driver, why wouldn't that person come forward? It it just seems strange. Anyway, we are not done with this episode yet, which is a good thing, because we're only seven minutes or so in. I do have one more strange case for you. This one is the disappearance of singer and songwriter Jim Sullivan. 
Jim Sullivan was born August 13, 1940. He grew up in San Diego, California. His Irish-American parents had moved there from Nebraska to work in the defense industry. Jim was a big guy, six foot two inches tall, and in high school he had played quarterback on the football team. After listening to local blues groups, he decided that he wanted to play music. I mean, how hard can it be? He eventually married and was playing the guitar in a local rock band called The Survivors. He bought a bar with his friend near where they went to college, but the bar never made any money, mostly just lost money. In 1968, Jim and family moved to Los Angeles. He continued to write songs and performed in increasingly more prestigious clubs in L.A. He eventually became established at a club in Malibu, where he met and became friends with several actors. In fact, Jim Sullivan appeared as an extra in the movie Easy Rider with his buddy Dennis Hopper, and he performed on a TV show. Despite the fact that his wife worked for a record company, Jim had some difficulty producing an album. Finally, in 1969, his album titled UFO was released. The album featured songs about about beckoning highways, Arizona ghost towns, and UFOs, aliens, and alien abduction. His second album, self-titled Jim Sullivan, was released in 1972 by Playboy Records. Unfortunately, neither of his albums were successful. Jim turned to alcohol and his marriage began to suffer. Then in 1975, he made the decision to head to Nashville to seek success there as a songwriter and singer. On March 4, 1975, Jim Sullivan left California and headed to Nashville in his VW Bug. He left between 12 p.m. and 1 p.m. with about $125 destined for Goodlettsville, Tennessee. On March 5th, around 3.15 California time, Jim Sullivan called his wife Barbara from Santa Rosa, New Mexico. He called to let her know that he was all right. His wife asked for some driver's license, number information for car insurance reasons, and asked him where he was. He told her he was in Santa Rosa. She asked where that was, and he said, New Mexico, I'll probably be leaving here tomorrow. She asked why he was waiting, and Jim said, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Forget it. Forget I said anything. I'll call you from Nashville. Days went by with no word from Jim. He didn't call to check in with his family. On March 14th, Jim's wife Barbara called the San Diego police to ask about filing a missing person report. She was told she would need to file in Los Angeles since that's where he was last seen. On March 17th, Jim's brother called Santa Rosa, New Mexico. The Sullivans learned that after 15 hours on the road, Jim Sullivan was pulled over under suspicion of driving under the influence. But Jim passed the sobriety test and he was released. Then on March 21st, Jim's brother was called by police to, and told that they had Jim's car in the impound lot and that it had been there since March 8th. Jim's car was found abandoned on March 8th, 23 miles from the main road near the Genetti Ranch. 
Mrs. Gennetti said she saw a man standing by a car and asked if he needed any help. He told her no. Mrs. Gennetti radioed her neighbor, Emil Bigelow, who then called the state police. Police had the car towed as abandoned. Further investigation revealed that on March 5th, after being released from the police department when he passed his sobriety test, Jim checked into the La Mesa Hotel in Santa Rosa. He also bought a bottle of vodka, but he never spent a night in his room. Police found that it had never been slept in, and the room key was left inside. One of the last people to see Jim Sullivan was a man named Pete Senna and his son Donald. Pete is now deceased, but he's thought to be the last person to actually speak to Jim. Pete worked on a ranch near where the car was discovered. He stopped to ask if Jim needed a ride. Donald Senna remembers, We thought he was some cowboy. He had a handlebar mustache just like a cattle hand we knew. Side note, in all the photos I have seen of Jim Sullivan, he had a Fu Manchu mustache, not a handlebar mustache. Just to make the distinction. Inside the abandoned car, they found his money, papers, clothes, a box of unsold records, and his guitar. A friend of Jim said, When I heard that the guitar was left, I knew he wasn't coming back. No matter what, Jim would never have left his guitar. There was a gas station worker who said that Jim had asked for directions back to California. His family said he wasn't suicidal and was looking forward to possible success in Tennessee. When investigators turned up no sign of Jim Sullivan or a reason for his disappearance, two of his brothers arrived in Santa Rosa to conduct their own investigation. Santa Rosa, New Mexico in 1975 was said to be the kind of town where you couldn't steal a piece of gum without everyone knowing about it. But no one in town knew what happened to Jim Sullivan. Some people say that the investigation was thorough. Others feel there was something strange about how things went down and thought it should have been investigated further. There was a decomposed body found in the desert, but it was apparently determined not to be Jim Sullivan's. There are some questions about who the dead man was and how exactly it was determined not to be Jim. There was no other information I could find about the body other than the fact that there are people who think it was Jim. Over the years, there have been many theories that include the mafia and law enforcement involvement and aliens. In fact, Jim's wife Barbara believed it was possible her husband was abducted by aliens. It was said that she and Jim didn't do a lot of drugs like many in that time period, but they both believed in reincarnation and astrology and all those woo-woo sort of things. And I say woo-woo with much love because I believe in most of the woo-woo stuff myself. It's just what I call it. It brought Barbara some comfort to think that Jim was alive out there in the universe somewhere where they would be able to eventually be together again. Jim certainly believed in aliens and UFOs, and I wonder if perhaps he had some experience with them at some time earlier in his life. To this day, no sign of Jim Sullivan has been found. I would love to play you a clip of his song UFO that talks about aliens and even ties it to the second coming of Christ, but there are copyright laws and rules and 
I don't really feel like being sued. Just Google it. You can find all of his work online. So that's going to do it for this episode. I know it's a little short one, just like last week. I apologize, but I am in the process of getting ready for the weekend. I have t-shirts, I have hoodies, I have decals, and I'm trying to pack it all up. In addition, I have to pack my clothing. And we are also taking the grandkids with us. We're turning it into a family vacation. So I have to pack all of that stuff. It's a little nuts, but at least we're not camping. I have a hotel with a normal flush toilet and shower. Thank God. Um, anyway, I hope to see some of you out at the Jefferson County Bigfoot and Paranormal Expo. Definitely stop by the booth and say, hey, buy a t-shirt. I don't know. As always, you can find Lurk wherever it is that you find your favorite podcast or at lurkpodcast.com where you can find the episodes along with links to our social media. I do want to ask, I have been using some background music. I use background music that is music plus some outdoor spooky noises with an owl hooting. I've used that quite a bit, and recently I started using the background noise of a campfire. I'm curious what you think. Do you like the background noise? Do you like one over the other? Do you prefer it when I take the time to put the sound effects in? I would like your feedback, because I've played around with a lot of different stuff, and really, I want to know what sounds the best to you guys, because you're the ones listening. If you like what you hear, please make sure you tell your friends and consider giving us a five-star review. If you have any topic suggestions, make sure you send those to lurkpodcast at yahoo.com. And until next time, keep lurking. Mm-hmm.